0: You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. This is Al Martin speaking. I have Jim Rustin on, the Managing Director at Armeta Analytics. Well, let me just stop there. Welcome, Jim.
1: Thank you for having me, Al. It's good to be here.
0: Let me give you a little bit of your career and then you can correct everything that I make a mistake on. I know that you've worked with multiple consulting companies, that being Accenture, Deloitte Consulting, and even our own IBM Global Services somewhere in the 90s. I know that you've been with Verizon and you've seen or oversaw the customer and marketing information. Then you helped found Armeta Analytics, which is helping Fortune 1000 clients with monetizing their data what did i miss
1: well i think you've got it pretty well there yeah i spent a lot of time with the, the management consulting companies even as uh, big blue tried to get into that space this was in the very early days before they uh, acquired pwc that was a great run uh, when the telcos deregulated i came into verizon because what they knew is they were a regulated entity right so they only knew how to provision product and how to to service it they didn't really know much about managing the customers figuring out the next best product offering and so we literally greenfielded from we know nothing about these customers to who are our exact best customers what's the next best product to offer them who's likely to churn how do we lower cost per gross out on the next one we went from zero to hundred there
0: i gotta give you an iq test we'll start right off oh no kansas barbecue or texas barbecue
1: You know, even in Texas, there is a big respect for the Kansas barbecue because it's beef. So we don't like that North Carolina style with all the pork. But I think of Kansas as more a big, thick steak and Texas as the brisket.
0: Have you ever had burn-ins? That's what I want to ask.
1: I have because there's a place in Dallas that opened about two years ago that's Kansas City style barbecue.
0: Ah, what'd you think of it?
1: I loved it, because that's the best part. It's kind of like the the bark on a good brisket, you know, that that (laughs) hard piece. It's wonderful.
0: (laughs) All right. As you can tell, Jim is from Texas. What, Dallas? Is that right?
1: In Dallas, yes.
0: Dallas, before we jumped on, we were talking about the Chiefs, who just won the Super Bowl, and the Hunts actually live. Do they live in Dallas? Yes. Yeah, they live in Dallas. And you were telling me, you you knew more about the Chiefs a, a little bit than I did in terms of, you know, they came from Dallas. I knew that, but you said that, uh, Lamar kind of, he was a fan of the uniforms of San Francisco, and that's why the KC kind of overlaps just like San Francisco on the helmet.
1: Yeah, so the letters intertwine, and then the color scheme is pretty much exactly the same, just uh, played out in a different way on the uniforms.
0: Is there anything else that I miss, you know, Accenture, Deloitte Consulting? It seems like most of your background is consulting, for sure.
1: Well, no, so the work with Verizon was internal, that was not consulting, that was how do we okay take all this data, and effectively monetize it, right? And that was different from the language then, but that's the learning that I took into um, helping found our meta-analytics in terms of how do we help big companies do this? Because really where a lot of that came from is I knew that analytics mattered. So if you think about the introduction of computing technology into business, the original dream and vision was always, imagine if all this data were in one place, what we could do with it. But what happened is when they put all that data in one place, they were like, what data do we start with? And this was back in the 60s, 70s, 80s. It was accounting data. And that's why all the accounting companies originally were the first consultancies because they were the ones that were saying, hey, we want to put all that data into one place. But what happened is it very quickly became how do you automate a transaction and lower cost and not how do you gain insights and value out of the data? So really almost everything we've seen until the last few years has been with technology has been, how do you lower the cost? How do you automate a transaction? Finally, people are starting to say, how do we leverage those insights and draw data from it? That's something that we did with Verizon. And that was a lot of the founding of our meta analytics, which is how do we help people monetize that data? Cause it's pretty hard to do. What we've seen is, and these aren't my numbers by the way, but if you Google it or just reading research, about 80% of analytics projects fail, and that's not random. There's a, a specific reason for that. And that was the founding of this company is how do we avoid that?
0: Well, so let's back up. I'll start with a simple question. You already gave it to me. How do you monetize data?
1: The first thing you do is you start with a change in an action. And so one of the ways I think of this is let's go through a typical way a company is going to do it. If I'm going to sit down with a group of people and think about, hey, how could we monetize data in this company? That's an expense. If we then go to a source system and suck data out of it, that's an expense. If we store that data somewhere, that's an expense. If we pick a tool to sit on top of it and visualize it, that's an expense. If we hire analysts to look at that visualization, that's an expense. Until we change an action, that means somebody makes a different decision than would have happened before, it's only expense. So the only way to monetize is to really be thinking about what actions are going to change, because that's when your ROI comes into play. So that's really the big secret, right? If you start there... You can do it. But you have to understand all those other tasks are expense and they're not ROI.
0: What you're suggesting, and you tell me if I'm right or wrong here, you start with the outcome so you know where you're going before you start spending all this money. Is that what you mean by what actions are gonna change, what outcomes, what ROI are gonna change as a result of this effort, and then you work backwards from there?
1: Yes. Now you might not know exactly what that outcome is, but you have to have an idea of who that end user is and what kind of businesses do they make and how might those be better? Again, if someone doesn't change an action, it's really hard to get an ROI. Frankly, it's impossible, right? Because you're, you're about lowering costs, which means buying differently, different volumes, selling at a different price, targeting different regions. Something has to be different or I'm doing the same thing, which isn't going to be better.
0: Well, so give me some common actions that you see prevalent in the industry right now of clients.
1: I always like to pick retail examples not because that's the best place but everybody understands it think about at a walmart you might walk in and think it's not very sexy what's in a walmart it's just shelves and product but there is an exact science to where how many linear inches on each shelf are applied to beverages versus salty snacks then within beverages how much goes to diet versus non-diet how much within brand pepsi versus coke versus dr pepper versus whatever other energy drinks and so forth There's exact science to that. How do I price that, right? How often do I need to refill it? Do I need to have three wide? Do I only have two wide? You're optimizing every single thing in there, but it's those changes and decisions that make it so efficient and thus allow them to win.
0: You mentioned specifically the idea of putting data in one place, and that was the MO of many uh, companies. What do you think their MO is today? Is it still putting data in one place?
1: Let's go all the way back to the the days of the general store where there was a great intimacy between that general store owner and everything. He, intimacy around where is he going to put it? How big should the store be? What are his hours? How does he price stuff? Which products does he carry? Which employees is he going to hire? There was a real intimacy to that. When mass production and scale came about, the general store went away, right? Because we went to just cheapest product, the big box stores, the Sears, and so forth, right? So it became around that. So we had this huge inflection that changed it. And literally what we're seeing today is that another inflection is occurring, and it's around analytics. And so instead of people, most people being visionary around it, we're seeing a lot of people being scared by it because they're seeing someone else winning with analytics. And so they're now defensively trying to figure out what did they need to do we don't care why you're, you're going about it. We want to help you monetize that data, whether you're a leader or if you're doing it defensively. But we are seeing more movement now on the defensive side because being a leader is dangerous, right? It's a lot easier to be defensive when someone else is doing it and they're winning. And so we think defense is a lot of that today.
0: If they're just being defensive, then I presume that they come to you a lot and just say, look, I've got to get into analytics. I'm not using it today. I'm scared. My competition is doing it. What can you do for me? And then I presume that you're gonna to have to go, you know, start at square one and do a user, use case assessment to figure out where they're headed.
1: Well, I think you exactly explained why there's an 80% failure rate today.
0: So you mentioned 80% failure rate. Is that because they don't have the outcome? Is, is that what you're suggesting?
1: Yeah, so there's a, a prescriptive approach in terms of how you go about this to win. And it's something I never understood as it being that difficult because our approaches had always been that way. And I realized why that was. And it goes back to when I was telling you earlier that technology became about how do you automate transactions, right? And the way I think about this is if you go to an ATM machine anywhere in the world and go get $150 out, it can instantaneously figure out, one, do you have $150 in your account? Two, have you taken more than 100 in the last 72 hours because there's a you know, $250 limit per 72 hours or something like that? It goes against a database of 30 million names at Bank of America and then pulls out Al's data, I mean Al's money. Even if the power goes out, it's figured out that handshake so that it doesn't debit your account and not give you the cash, and certainly not give you the cash and debit your account. But it's really figured out that whole thing. Now, if I went to that same database and said, hey, let's look at these customers. Let's figure out who has an average daily balance of, let's say, $5,000, uses ATM three or more times in a quarter, and lives in this cluster of zip plus fours that we want to target, that database literally couldn't answer it because it was all put together with technology and methodologies around automating a transaction. But what I wanted to do is go in there and start monetizing that data to figure out how to get more value out of it, but it's not set up that way. And if if I've mastered that methodology of automating transactions, I'm probably not very good at going about an analytics project. Because it's a completely different approach. And I don't think people yet understand that difference in methodology. And we see it very often where we go into a client and they say, oh, let me pull the database administrator off of this point of sale system and he'll help build the data warehouse. And I'm like, that's not the same skill set. You know, that, that's like saying I could take somebody at my local Ford dealership that works in the service bay and have them tune a Formula One racer. Even though it uses similar parts, it's a very different skill. And so that approach for uh, the methodology for analytics is
0: very different. What I heard you say there is if you're looking at ATM, you're looking at high transaction loads, two-phase commits, and that's where it's been optimized. Got it. When you're looking at analytics, that format is not always optimal or performance-centric. So you've got to think of things like data warehouse, columnar. Do you still see a gap in the expertise of you know, previous DBAs and those that are capable of creating the data warehouse? I mean, is that skill set distinct enough?
1: No, that's a great question. So there's a few factors in there. One is we still don't typically see people who have been groomed and lived their entire career in analytics. They're usually, um, when there's a firefight, they're pulled off and put on whatever the transaction system is, right? Maybe it's, maybe it's timekeeping, maybe it's, it's payroll, maybe it's uh, accounts payable. those are emergencies and they get pulled off and put onto that so if every time we have an emergency i'm going to take my best and brightest people and pull them off of something and put them on that they're probably not going to be the best at analytics so that's one but the second part of that is again even if i don't understand the methodology if i've got a change in action and i see this very often i want to get as much data as possible and store as much length as possible and the greatest volume possible with a maximum number of attributes because that would be more valuable and if that becomes your focus you're not thinking about what activity of what action am I going to change and so you're not going to get that ROI those are very different approaches and usually it's one of those two things is what's going to drive again that 80% failure rate
0: but if I'm a customer we're in 2020 now and you know I've been moving data forever i created this data lake by example to do some of what you're talking about maybe it's my data warehouse that's you know used ETL coming from my transactional data store and, and, you know, I moved it over. Maybe I built it on Hadoop. Now I got a mess on my hands. I'm not getting the analytics that I want to be able to answer some of the questions that you, you talked about. I want to charge my vendors more for prominent shelf space based on factual data. Probably going to tell me I got to clean up my data. I've got to maybe create another data warehouse. I'm like, dude, I am sick of moving data. What is the way to clean up my IA get it set back up to answer some of the questions that I need to answer.
1: Well, I think you nailed it right there, which is what questions are we trying to answer? And if we cannot say that together, it's gonna be really hard to to develop a, a solution that's going to solve that. So absolutely, let's figure out where those problem points are and let's not try to solve everything at once. I'm a big believer in crawl, walk, run. And whenever you try to attack everything at once and clean all the data and store it at all levels for all users, that sounds like eating an elephant one bite, and that seems a little dangerous to me. There's a couple things around our prescriptive approach, and it's why I just wrote a book around this called Guaranteed Analytics, because what we want to do is we want to guarantee you get the value out of the analytics. And so a couple things. One, what are you trying to do with it? We believe in crawl, walk, run, which means let's gain some momentum, let's get some wins. We also believe in tight intervals, so always delivering at least in a quarterly fashion, in other words, if you have a project that's got an 18, 24 month window of when the major deliverables are gonna happen, everybody has forgotten about that about six months into it. So that's too long. We think you've always gotta be having something with quarterly being the maximum periodicity frequency allowed. Because think about that, if I do it at least once a quarter, that means I'm always a maximum of, as a user for 45 days from either having seen a deliverable or know that a new one's coming. And that keeps me engaged in there. So there are a number of different tasks in here that are tactical that help you be successful in that. And each of these is very important. And if you aren't attacking it that way, you'll often see things, you know, trying to bite off too much at one time and not being successful, not being action-oriented. There's a number of things in there that can cause problems.
0: So what are the common challenges you're facing when you're being asked to come in and drive an analytics architecture or solution for a client. What do you see as the like top three challenges that either get in the way, inhibit, or are unforeseen gotchas that nobody anticipates?
1: So one is we think a lot of people try to bite off more than they can chew, which is instead of having some momentum and some wins and getting everybody excited, they want to solve the entire enterprise-wide problem up front for everybody. And we know that all users are not the same. so. One solution is not going to meet all users' needs, right? You really have to think about those user segments and really breaking those out as to how they want to interact with the information, how they use it in their daily job. A second one would be people that get enamored with a particular tool. And it'd be like, I always tell people, if you gave me an electric screwdriver for Christmas, I would walk around the house looking for places I could tighten things and use this screwdriver. And we think when it's a tool-driven approach, we see similar behavior even in the corporate world. The last one that, we see so often is not an alignment between the end user that's going to drive a business decision and the IT worker who's going to implement it. And if they're not meeting consistently or if they're not meeting on a frequent enough basis to be speaking the same language, that can be a problem. And here's the perfect example is every client is always want to look at sales numbers, right? And what we find is everywhere we've ever been, there are 17 different definitions of sales. And That can be a problem because a man with two watches never knows what time it is right so we're very much around let's get a clear lexicon so we all know what we're speaking to and that sounds very basic but it's one of the most important things that can happen for analytic success
0: is that just to say to get everybody on the the same page it and the business alike yes are you able to do that (laughs) i i asked that kind of in jest but kind of you know very seriously because look Some of these companies particularly if you're dealing with fortune 1000 client that means that look these are big clients and sometimes the left hand doesn't talk to the right hand and you know you're you're solving company culture at that point
1: well i can't say that every place is solvable but we've had great success there and a lot of we know that everybody's on the same goal, right? Because everybody wants to spend the least time possible, the least amount of money possible, and getting the greatest results. You know, we really find it since we have goal alignment. If we can get everybody speaking the same way and meeting frequently enough, we do find there is a, a commonality there because they are they are trying to solve the same goals.
0: My research tells me that Armeta had incredible success by saving companies north of a million dollars in overhead costs. Talk to me about some of the overhead costs that you're talking about. I mean, that's significant and folks listening, I I think that alone could get them very interested in what you're selling here.
1: Well, when you talk about Fortune 1000s, you're talking about in the billions of dollars and it doesn't take much of a move of the needle for that to occur. We're working with a, a distributor of food products and they've got billions of dollars of food that they're moving. And if we can reduce spoilage by just a tiny amount, right? If we can avoid uh, lost orders uh, just by a tiny amount, if we can um, improve the pick pack shape and shipments just a little bit by location where it's going, those things drive gigantic numbers of opportunity. And so if you can just be better and better each block and each tackle, you can have a much better game plan. And that's usually what we see.
0: The three keys to at least success, I don't know if those keys to success, but the common challenges you mentioned is look, can't be a hero, meaning you can't bite off more than you can chew. You've got to do the uh, crawl, walk, uh, run method so you can see success and, and build upon that momentum. Secondly, don't let tools drive it. And lastly, get the IT and business integrated and thinking alike. Did I get it right?
1: Yeah, and, and in particular, in IT and business, it's having a common goal, right? What are we trying to do? Let's have the same language, having a governance around that. And there's a very clear structure around how you put those teams into place, that's very important, right? From your what we call a core team, which is your everyday project team, to your working committee that's involved, but not involved in every detail, to your executive or steering committee that wants to make sure they're headed in the right direction and that the, um, the compass is pointing north. So making sure those are put together in a way that you have the right buy-in from top to bottom.
0: You talked to a prescriptive approach. I presume that that's different than a descriptive approach. And if you could explain why. And then the question is, I got to believe that you also have some preferred technology solutions that go into that prescriptive approach to solvent analytics.
1: The way I think about prescriptive versus descriptive is on every project, there's always somebody that raises their head. They're usually extraordinarily smart and they ask some kind of a, a question that sounds amazing, like, hey, how are we going to use artificial intelligence to be better about our predictive forecasting for customer acquisition next quarter. And that does sound amazing, right? But I'm a math guy. And what I mean by that is a basic math guy, not a fancy math guy. And I say, hey, an amazing approach times 0% adoption, because nobody understands it or isn't behind it equals what? And the answer is 0 What about a good approach that isn't perfect, but I've got 80% of the constituency liking it and wanting to do it. That's worth a whole lot more. And so I'm not saying you should pick lesser goals, but you need to pick realistic goals that people want to adopt because perfection is rarely adopted by everybody. And we believe it's the idea times the adoption. That end product is really where your ROI comes from. So that's what we mean by prescriptive versus descriptive. Descriptive is like, in theory, imagine what this would do to the company, and it's like time zero adoption. That's not great. And so prescriptive is how do you get the humans involved? How do you move this organization forward? How do you have everybody speaking to the same thing so that we're all marching to the same beat?
0: Any preferred technologies that you're working with?
1: Yeah, so you, you mentioned columnar databases, analytical systems. I'm going to use some words that sound like synonyms, but they're not. And That is data, information, insights. They sound the same, but they're not the same at all. Data is zeros and ones. It is black and white. It is fact. You cannot change data. Information is, hey, what is that data starting to tell me? And insights is what you learn from that data so you can change in action. So I'll give you a little example I've kind of thought through. is If I took a photograph of me camping, and it was a picture of the tent and my campground and the trees, and it was all just zeros and ones of it's black or gray or white, that photograph, that's data. I can't change it. Information would be, hey, let me go in and everywhere it looks like an animal footprint, let me highlight it to be red so that we can see where the animal footprints are. Insight would be, wow, that's a grizzly bear track right near my tent. I need to pack up and get out of here. Those are very different things in there, even though they sound the same. And that's a lot of what we want to drive because what we find is that people just say that they don't know what they're trying to get to. They just collect all that data and they don't know how they're going to actionate on it. And again, that's where your ROI comes from.
0: So one thing you, you talk about is knowing your destination so you can set out an architecture or prescriptive approach to get there. Where does AI fit in? Where does not knowing the questions that you want to ask, where does it come into your solution around analytics here? Well, we see it less from not knowing the question to ask, but more
1: with like being on steroids. So, historically, if you took all this data and you were trying to find some patterns or figure out the best way to predict this kind of an outcome, you'd think, oh, there's a couple different methods, how do I want to go about this? And you were hoping that your data scientists picked the right one. And what we're finding now is these data scientists are leveraging these tools because they understand exactly how to put it in and what to look at on the backside. We we're able to go through hundreds, if not thousands of more scenarios to get to the ones that matter the most. And that we have found to be so much more effective than if I had to manually go through each of those scenarios and pick exactly which one I thought it would be. So we're just finding it to be a great accelerator of how do I take this data and, and get to that insight I need.
0: Who are the decision makers you're typically working with? I mean, what persona are they?
1: One of the ways I like to think about it is, it is somebody at the end of the day that has p responsibility, because that's the ones that are changing the profit and loss for a company. So ultimately it's gonna sit over there.
0: Yeah, but so in that case, if you're talking analytics, you're often talking, hey, look, I wanna I wanna create a an architecture or an environment by which I can get analytics and AI out of it. But once you're dealing with AI, you're potentially dealing with a CDO, you're dealing with, you know, your your data scientist. Do you find yourself in the C suite talking with them, those decision makers, or do you feel like, no, nah, I've gotta I've got to convince uh, the, uh, those that own the data stores, the IT, or i got to convince those that are uh, driving the data science and the analytics space, or is it every one of them you're meeting with upon every engagement, or is every engagement different?
1: Yeah, every engagement is going to be different, and there are a lot of different players on the teams, but we want to make sure that PL person is involved somewhere, and that's important because even if I'm a chief data officer, even if I'm in charge of architecture, why am I in charge of architecture? For what? For whom? What's going to happen? So we need to make sure we understand how that knowledge worker at the end of the day is going to utilize that to change an action. Because remember, there's no ROI until an action is changed. So we're very focused around having those people at the, um, the table when we talk. So people out of the, the profit and loss centers. So somewhere, ultimately it rolls up to a C-level. But there are a lot of people between that, that individual knowledge worker and that C-level that are part of that on that side. So, but very much so is people whose decisions change the profit and loss of a company.
0: What is the best method to seal that deal? What makes the difference for them to say, "Oh, I gotta, you know, I, I gotta work with uh, Jim here"?
1: That's a great question. I think ninety nine percent of the time they're going to fall in one of two camps. Either a they thought it was easy, they tried it and found out it was a lot harder than they thought, so they probably failed, right? So that's where the eighty percent comes in. But the second one is they realize there's absolute value there and every day they don't take advantage of it they're leaving money on the table. Those are one of those two camps is where we're going to play. The people who say, "Hey, we want to do the same thing, spend a little bit and maybe a little bit better." They're probably not going to be a client of ours, right? Because that's not somebody who's willing to change. That's somebody who just wants to put their toe in the water and see what it is like. So one of those two camps of they've tried and failed or They know that time actually matters. They'd like to accelerate getting to those results and moving their business forward.
0: Have you read the challenger sale? No. It talks about driving towards, uh, you know, solution oriented sales. In other words, end to end. So you talk to that return on investment. Is that where you end up landing or is it more specific, just unique use cases that get the client to pull the trigger?
1: Well, so, again, back to the crawl, walk, run, is usually there's, you start with a unique case, prove that out, because you want momentum, right? You want people excited. You want them to see wins. Remember I talked about very frequent touches, and then even if we're going to solve a big problem, we now want to do something else that within the next 90 days we deliver something else, so continually to enhance that momentum, people seeing that progress, they can remember it, they can be around it, they can be excited. Those are very important components, and those will trump, by the way, the world's most amazing technological solution that takes 18 months to get there, that when it gets delivered, they don't even remember who the end user is, and by the way, that person was transferred or has been promoted and doesn't care right now. Those are very important factors. Of Remember, we're trying to move the human organization forward and be different. And so we think people overlook this a lot, and it's a very important factor.
0: I've got some great experts on all sides of the business, whether that be data experts, analytics, AI, data science experts. I go out and read your guaranteed analytics. Why do I still need our meta?
1: I mean, if you can read it and, and follow that completely, I truly believe it's a prescriptive approach, but a lot of times when you get into something, you say, okay, I'm gonna run this problem. But now you're like, now what? I don't know how to get around this roadblock. And that's what we really bring, right? Because we've been doing this for so long. We've been through so many of these. We're saying, oh, when you see this, we've seen this a half a dozen times before. Here's the best way to go about it. So again, we're just reducing your error rate. We're just accelerating your results. If you go read my book, Guaranteed Analytics, it will really help you get to where you need to be if you can follow it directly. Is it doing well? Yes, yeah, doing great. We were uh, top in many categories around tech and data within Amazon. So we've been very excited. We had a great reception. How long have you been doing this now? So I came into uh, the space back in the 90s. It was really more called like database marketing or efficient merchandising, there were different words put around it. Nobody called analytics. And then we went through kind of a CRM phase, but I've been doing this for 25, 30 years now.
0: What has been the most profound change that you've seen?
1: Even though we don't only do retail, again, I like to pick these examples, but when Amazon and Netflix and others used analytics and started to win, people started to take notice. And so we now hear all sorts of people talking about analytics that before If we even use words around data, it sounded boring, and now it sounds sexy. And so that change of last, I'm going to say 10 to 15 years has been very exciting to me because people are now understanding it. They want to do it. When I had to convince them that there's an opportunity here, they're starting with, hey, we know there's something. Help us figure out how to get there. Where
0: do you think we'll be like 5, 10 years from now?
1: If I look at the parallels in the consumer space, there's so much information available to everybody, but nobody can see any of it, right? Cause they're all just fall into an echo chamber. And I worry that the similar things could happen on the business side. The only difference being at least businesses at the end of the day are trying to make money and trying to be right. I don't know, but I worry sometimes that it could get pigeonholed and be used simply to reinforce pre preconceived beliefs, as opposed to looking at what the information is actually telling you.
0: Hey, is there anything we didn't say about our meta that you'd like to get out?
1: I don't think so. Um, I'd love for people to just Google or meta analytics. They can reach out to me on LinkedIn if they like, just make sure you put a note. Cause I, as y'all know, so many people are on LinkedIn and just trying to maximize our number of connections. So if you don't put a note ahead of time, I don't know who that is. But if you tell me, Hey, I heard you're on the podcast, you know, and put a note in there. I'd love to talk to them.
0: Fantastic. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Hey, I got a couple of personal questions for you that I like to ask you game. What do you do for fun in Dallas? Big D.
1: I'm an oddball because I'm such into data analytics, I tend to avoid video games and social media and some of that, right? And so my downtime is completely off grid. So I own some land that's out and you can see the Milky Way at night. Don't see any other lights. I get away from it all, truly get away. That's my recharge.
0: So what do you do? You hunt? You fish? What?
1: Yes. I like kind fishing. I like oh, just managing the wildlife particular, whether it's through photography or viewing them. I've got into some weird activities, like I uh, love the rocks on the land. I've been picking up and, and gathering them, and I worked with a stonemason. We put a stone chapel together by hand. And uh, I like the, uh, the tactile work of uh, actually moving and getting outside.
0: You're building a chapel made from stones.
1: Yes. Olivia de Havilland um, had a ranch in Texas many years ago, I believe the same one, Gone with the Wind, who's still alive, 100-plus years old, She's not there anymore, but I had visit when it was a B&B, and they had this amazing stone Mayan-inspired chapel. And I was like, that's neat. And I was on the land one day, and I saw these rocks and said, you know what? I think with enough heft, I could put these into place, and we could have something similar. And that was the, the inspiration for it all.
0: She's still alive. That's crazy. I know. <laughs> I can't believe that. I, just, I had to look it up when you were telling me that.
1: I think it's true
0: you are true 103 years old are
1: you looking it up right now yeah i looked it up that's amazing
0: <laughs> so but is this on her
1: land then or what no she had one yeah she had a um a stone chapel and then when i was on my land one time i was like you know what I i have a vision of what was there many years ago and started putting stones on top of stones until it came into fashion but that was my inspiration was what she had on her place
0: how big is this place
1: probably 10 by 12 feet, so small, but very intimate.
0: Well, that's nice. And stones you're, you, that you've gathered?
1: Yes, yeah, so it, it is made to look like it's 100 years old by the time we finished it.
0: What books do you read to keep up on all these technologies? Love books. I love even more is if I can absorb them in
1: 30, 45 minutes from listening to an author's podcast or an interview somewhere, that's where I go. Because I find that I'm not gonna remember everything in that book anyway, but if I can get to the nuts and bolts by hearing them talk to somebody, that's where I'm getting my learning. And then if, if I just listen to everybody around me, they'll say, you need, like you recommended a book earlier, The Challenger Sale, right? So I wrote that down. That's one I'll, I'll go follow up on. But by trying to keep my ears open, I hear the things that I think I need to go look at.
0: So you're a podcast junkie like me then, huh?
1: Yes, love them. It really is just a great accelerated way. And I like hearing the voice of the person who actually had the idea, right? Cause they usually have a passion behind it and you
0: don't, sometimes it doesn't jump out on just the page for me. I like to play a game. It's called, would you rather? You got to pick one side of the fence. You got to pick one, uh, even if it's difficult, you know, and you can give me like a one bullet reason as to why you picked it. All right. Go ahead. Data or analytics?
1: Analytics for sure.
0: And the one bullet, why is analytics more important than data to you?
1: Cause data is a cost and analytics is a profit.
0: Good. Engineering or math? Oh,
1: that's a tough one because I love math, but I'm an engineer. So I like math because it's pure, pure science, right? It's not just about how it's applied, which is what engineering is, but more the purity of it.
0: All right. Brisket or ribs? (laughs) Brisket.
1: (laughs) Well, I don't know. Beef ribs are amazing. But normally when you just say ribs, people think of pork ribs. And there's a place in Llano, Texas called Cooper's Barbecue. And when you can get a beef rib, I mean... They're like a pound and a half a piece, but boy, they sure are
0: good. Very well, okay, brisket or burnt ends? Well, look, I'm a Texan. <laughs> uh, you, you better say burnt ends. That's what the answer is. It's an easy okay. answer. Yeah, If I wanted to kiss up to you, I would have said burnt ends. <laughs> Man, the, the burnt, look, you said it earlier perfectly. Let's just keep that. We'll just d- delete the the last comment because the burn ends are like the best part of the brisket. It's like the candy. It's like a adult candy.
1: It is. Oh. That, that savoriness with a little bit of the fat in it and the pepper. Oh. and the stuff.
0: Mm. Verizon or Sprint? No, I work for Verizon, so Verizon. I knew you were going to be in Sprint's <laughs> right out my, my, my front door. All right, Tex-Mex or Mexican?
1: Well, I worked in Mexico City for a long time, so I am a fan of Mexican. But I will tell you, I've never met anybody that doesn't love Tex-Mex. Now, there's one problem with Tex-Mex is if you go have it, you're going to eat three whole baskets of chips.
0: IBM or being your own boss?
1: You know what, here's what's great about IBM, and I had such a great time there, is my mother has never understood what I've done in my life until I worked at IBM and then it all made sense to her. But absolutely, working, uh, being your own boss is got the biggest challenges, the longest hours, but it's, it's a very rewarding feel.
0: All right, self-serving again. IBM in the 90s or IBM now?
1: You know what, it was a lot better in the 90s and I mean, you've seen some of the challenges, but the truth is, IBM is really set up right now to do really well with all the opportunities around the cloud that you know, got shut out a little bit in the application space because it focused on such big hardware that now with the cloud, there's a real opportunity for IBM.
0: Man, I, I gave you that softball, that one you killed. It's out of the park. All <laughs> right, hey, Jim, thank you so much for being with us today, I appreciate it. I know our is doing great things and uh, will continue to do great things. I wish you the best, my friend. Thank you, Al, it's been great. All right, thank you and and for everybody listening as always, I will see you on the podcast until next time. See ya. Until next time, let's go over and out.